Welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Kayla. How are you this morning? Good. How are you, Laurie? I'm excited about today. Yep. We have a guest today on our podcast, Kathleen Cochran. And I'm going to go ahead and just read off a little bit of information about Kathleen and just introduce her to our listeners. Kathleen Cochran is the founder of Moms for All Pathways to Recovery, a large Facebook group dedicated to education and evidence-based policy and practice in the field of addiction. She is a wife to her husband, Joe, of 34 years, the mother to three children, Ian, Molly, and Joey, and the proud grandmother of a two-year-old grandson, Luca. Kathleen has been walking alongside her middle child, Molly, for 18 years of problematic drug and alcohol use. She and her daughter and grandson recently told a bit of their story in a documentary produced by the Partnership to End Addiction, an organization that she also volunteers for as a peer coach to other families. The documentary entitled Untreated and Unheard can be viewed on Pluto, Peacock, or YouTube. Kathleen strongly advocates for harm reduction and is passionate about helping other mothers. She is fully trained in the invitation to change approach through the Center for Motivation for Change by Drs. Carrie Wilkins, Ken Carpenter, and Jeff Foote, authors of the book Beyond Addiction. Kathleen and her family, and this is a really interesting piece of information, but Kathleen and her family live on the central coast of California, where she manages a dude ranch. Hello, Kathleen. How are you? Great. Yeah, coming uh, coming to you from uh, 11,000 acres of beautiful country out here in the central coast where we offer dude ranch facilities for guests, mostly families, and we also are a full working cattle operation. Pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, what? That sounds like fun to me. I've actually seen pictures where you work and I'd love to come and visit it someday. Gotta have to make a special trip out. Maybe, maybe all three of us, Kayla, me, Dominique. We do offer retreats through my organization. So we have an upcoming one uh, in September where we bring mothers together for a three-day retreat that includes equine therapy, guest speakers, but it's mostly really focused on camaraderie. Awesome. And just a question, does that, does that invitation include fathers? No, we are just mothers. Okay. No offense at all to fathers. And maybe one day we can figure out how to get more of them involved. Okay. So Kathleen, why don't you just spend a little bit of time kind of telling your story, let our listeners know what brought you to do what you're doing? Well, of course, you know, Lori, I can't really tell my daughter's story, which is a pretty profound and heartbreaking one. But I can tell you, uh, because I respect her, her privacy and her dignity as an individual, but I can tell you about my journey walking alongside her. So my daughter has done drugs and or alcohol for 18 years. She's 31. And so it seems profound to say that she's actually done drugs 
longer than she hasn't. And I am happy to tell you that she is currently in recovery. But, you know, just because you take the drugs away don't mean all the behaviors go away. And so we are helping her really to learn things that she's never learned before, even simple things like opening up a bank account and looking for a job. She was very good and an absolute expert at looking for drugs. And so we're, I'm trying to figure out how to take those great skills and uh, turn them into something positive. And she is the mother to my two-year-old grandson. And she is just, that is, she is just so amazing at that job. They live with us. So I get to see her in action every day. And it's just absolutely the job that she was really born to do. Just wanted to put that out right away that we're in a good place today. But it hasn't always been good. In fact, it's been really more more troubling, heartbreaking, and challenging than it has been good. And she, you know, started very early. I, of course, wanted to give her the best level of care and, you know, sent her to a therapeutic boarding school, what I thought was the best in the country. And that was a disastrous. In fact, that probably did more damage and launched her into uh, an even darker space. That boarding facility is closed down now, and I'm sure that your listeners have probably read about the troubled teen industry, but uh, I'm sorry to say that even, you know, 18 years later, it's still alive and well and functioning in many cities. The only thing I knew how to do was to try to put her somewhere that I thought was safe, and for me, that was uh, rehabilitation facilities, so we spent the next 10 years going in and out of treatment. She went to 20 in total. I, I always like feel embarrassed to say that number because, you know, it just seems like the complete definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and just thinking, well, maybe I didn't have her in a good enough one. And so let me do more research and put her in a better one. And the big thing that I missed every time, because she was really a model rehab student all the reports that we got back. Molly is fantastic. You know, she's doing everything she's supposed to do. We as a family, I mean, all of us, including her two brothers, participated in all the family activities at every, I mean, we just gave it our all. But every time right before she went, she would just tell me, you know, I'll do this for you, but I'm not really ready to stop using drugs. I like using drugs. And I, for whatever reason, and I'm sure a lot of parents think this too, I really thought, well, how can she know what she's talking about? She's on drugs. I really bought into the whole hijacked brain theory and she really had no, no autonomy and she wasn't an individual and this alien person had come and stolen her. And if I could just, you know, get her sober long enough, to have a clear mind, then she would come out of rehab and that would be it. And she would come out of rehab and relapse immediately. Finally, I don't know, probably the, the last rehab that I really started doing some research. And 
I had all of my research to this date had been really through other support groups, online Facebook support groups, where I was taking advice from other mothers. And that advice was, well, you got to throw her out. You know, she needs to hit rock bottom. I was called all kinds of names. You know, I was an, an enabler. I must be codependent. I should take some code. Oh, even the rehabs told me that. I mean, the professionals told me, you really need to read the book Codependent No More. You really have to stop calling your daughter at rehab and talking to her. You need to detach. You know, I was really shamed for being a mother. My child was struggling and hurting and sick. And that's not how mother's instinctual reactions are. I mean, we're going to jump in and try to fix it. And so, you know, maybe there's a little bit to be learned there. And I learned a lot about, you know, that I can't really fix it through even groups like Allies in Recovery and other groups that specialize in craft were very helpful for me to realize that my daughter had to fix it. But you know, I started doing research and I realized, and I, I talk about this in the documentary with the partnership, you know, through 20 rehabs and, you know, I had really good insurance and I know not everyone does. And it breaks my heart even to talk about this because, you know, in a sense, Molly was privileged and could have the best treatment that was available. And, and so many people can't. But she she could. And in those 20 rehabs of psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, counselors, all the people that were supposed to be responsible for her care, you know, not one of them ever told me that I should try medications for her opioid use disorder. Not one. You and I have talked in the past and we have similar, we have alignment in our stories of the same type of thing where I, I also was attending a lot of groups, got a lot out of them, but I heard a lot of the same stuff that you heard that I was actually, I was being told I didn't cause it, but boy, oh boy, I was causing it by the, by my supposed enabling and my codependency and my, and I was like, I'm confused here. Right. Am I the cause of it or am I not the cause of it? And I felt very similar to you. I felt very shamed. Mommy shaming, total mommy shaming. And, you know, so I started to do research on, you know, medications, really evidence-based research on medications for opioid use disorder. My daughter was a very serious, there's different kind of levels of addiction my daughter was on the severe end of addiction, an IV user, and a chronic relapser. And so all of those things should have been somebody's signal to say, you know, I think your daughter needs some medication. And still, even to this day, although it's a little bit better, you know, rehabs aren't set up for that. And, you know, you just kind of wonder, is it, is it because they want the rents, the wash, rents, and repeat? They get to have someone that comes back. I don't know. I mean, it's probably sinister of me to think that, but you can't help but wonder, like, why would you not want to try to save my daughter's life? And so I started talking in Facebook groups about that. Oh, gosh. You know, I started posting some articles 
And then the conversation turned to, oh no, that's just trading one addiction for another. I heard that in every single group I was in. And I was like, well, okay. Um, you know, my daughter no longer lies, steals, cheats, manipulates, prostitutes, shoplifts. So if that's trading one addiction for another, I'll take this other addiction anytime. And I just realized, you know, there's so much information out there. There's so many uh, incredibly amazing, talented scientists, researchers, doctors, advocates, harm reduction, reductionists that people don't have access to or the time to follow all these people. And so that's kind of how I got to forming my group, which I was very intentional about it not being a support group, but a group where mothers, fathers, siblings, anyone that loves someone that's struggling can come and get the very latest evidence-based research, uh, great opinion pieces, and uh, I also do lives in that group. Yesterday, we had Dr. Paul Jordy, who uh, founded the Liberate Methadone Coalition. He's a scientist and a researcher. And, you know, he talked to my group about methadone. And I can just tell you from reading the comments on the thread, you know, half of what he said, people just did not know or did not get or did not realize even today with all the information out. So, you know, here we are now, three years later, um, my group has grown to about 3000 members, which is great. I never really cared about how many members, you know, I grew it very organically, but now I feel a little passionate about trying to get the word out more because we also follow drug policy and there are these huge Facebook groups with 25,000, 30,000 members that are spewing a narrative that politicians are grabbing onto and they are starting to push out dangerous laws like drug-induced homicide, which is just breaking my heart. And so I decided, boy, I, I probably need to to try to get my word out a little more. So I appreciate I appreciate this opportunity to speak with you guys. Kathleen, when, when you say there's these groups doing this, so they're talking about drug-induced homicide, what are, are they trying to do their own version of treatment? What kind of information are they disseminating? Unfortunately, these groups are mostly mothers, fathers, people that have lost a loved one to overdose and specifically to fentanyl. So we know that the drug supply is poisoned and, you know, unfortunately we have people that think they're getting one drug and they're actually getting another and their tolerance is such that they die almost immediately. And so, you know, they're angry. I have many friends, of course, being in this space for as long as I've been in, I have many, many, many friends that have lost their children. And so I understand up close and personal how, I mean, there are no words and, and the pain never goes away, but these particular groups 
seemed to me to be more full of vengeance, an eye for an eye. And I mean, I'm all about taking down the cartel and, and the big guys, but you know, there's just been all kinds of research and lived experience reporting that says, you know, most of those people are just feeding their own habit. They're selling so they can use. My daughter sold drugs. I mean, God forbid she would have sold something to someone that thought they were getting a Percocet and really got 100% fentanyl and it killed them and she would be in jail for murder in some states. I think that the mainstream population, because I I also think, I think the politicians are latching on to that, that emotional piece that these families have lost a loved one. I think politically, the moves that are being made in Washington is not founded in information and in evidence. And actually, a lot of these laws, these new laws that they're trying to put in place can cause a whole lot of damage a whole lot of damage and can actually make the epidemic a lot worse and a lot more people are going to die if people aren't basing policy and laws in evidence of what works and what doesn't work. We all know about the Purdue money that's coming into all of the different states to try and battle opioid use And so there's a lot of money going to the different states, but a lot of people want that money to go towards law enforcement and go towards border, the border crisis to stop the flow of drugs coming across the border. But actually what that can do, well, if you know a certain certain bits of information that actually 75% of people arrested for getting drugs across the border happen to be United States citizens. It's not people coming from Mexico, trying to bring in all sorts of drugs. And then there's a whole bunch of other issues. There's an article that just came out from Brown University where it shows that when there is these large drug busts, fentanyl, right? And you hear about them in the newspaper. Oh, you know, this police department did a raid in this area and they they confiscated. There was one in the paper, I think, today about the paper. There was one in the news today, I know I'm dating myself here, or aging myself, about San Francisco. There was some big, huge fentanyl drug bust in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, enough to kill. Yeah, Yeah. enough to kill, right? So they do that whole sensationalizing it. And what people don't realize is anytime there's a large drug bust like that, everybody that's in the industry starts hunkering down and getting ready for a higher a rise in overdose deaths and in overdoses because one you can do these drug busts but the people struggling with addiction their illness doesn't go away it doesn't go away so you can take the drug away but the person is still going to be looking for that drug or something to take away the pain. And oftentimes they'll turn to a drug dealer that maybe they don't know, or they'll they'll turn to all sorts of other sources for these drugs and their tolerance level to this new introduction to this new drug, it doesn't exist. And they're more likely to overdose and to overdose and die. That's an example, Lori, of, you know, I published three, I published the study when it came out. And then I published three articles about it 
it's like I have to hit people over the head, hit them over the head, and then try to hit them over the head again. And we see this, we continue to see this with a lot of myths around drugs, including that you can overdose by touching fentanyl. And, you know, I have to go at that on a constant basis in my group. And I still get people saying, well, no, you know, I read an article. Then we go and I have, you know, I have a great admin team that are experts in the field too. We have to go and sort of break that down. Because obviously, if people are afraid that they're going to overdose by touching fentanyl, they're not going to try to save someone's life who is overdosing from fentanyl. And so getting that point across is not just publishing one or 20 research studies. It's, you know, just constantly staying with it and trying to give our members the entire story, the entire picture, and what's at stake even in those states that have Good Samaritan laws. I just wanted to clarify also that that there's a pattern when there's an overdose in an area that the people who are addicted actually are drawn to that area because that means the drugs are stronger. So that's also another thing that happens is it's not like, oh, somebody died, let me run. It's like, oh, those must be really good drugs, so I need to get them. So what what some people think makes no sense is different if you're trying to get high because you're going for the strongest hit you could possibly get. I do know that there is that, but I also know that uh, many organizations that do drug testing, which is a lifesaver and it needs to be everywhere, will publish what they're seeing on the street. I sometimes see people say, don't tell, don't put that out there because now everyone's going to try to go to that area. Well, okay, maybe that's a little bit of truth, but people that use drugs are not stupid. They are not stupid and they don't want to die. And so if they know what's in their drugs and they know uh, they do these bad bachelors, then they can still do that drug, right? They, They will still probably do that drug but they will know how to use it more safely. Right. Yeah. And so Kathleen, you you have this whole set of tools that you use in your groups and the education that you're doing. Can you describe what some of them are? I have a pretty, in my group, I have a pretty thorough guide section on a variety of different topics, all things addiction related. And then I also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Twice a month, we have an expert in the field of addiction or an author that has written about maybe their own lived experience on to help further educate. And we, you know, I mean, I personally spend two hours every morning reading drug news. Lori sometimes makes fun of me, you know, if I don't get something, I get it up a day after it came out, you're slipping, you know. But that's my commitment is to is to do that. Now, we, um, you know, we gathered all these mothers, which was great, and then kind of realized, well, wait a minute, we're, we want to be an educational resource group. So let's go find experts in, in the field of addiction. So we have doctors and nurses and psychologists and harm reductionists. And then thinking about it even further, and learning about this powerful phrase of nothing about us 
without us, I realized that I needed to also have at my table people that use drugs. And so I have a lot of those. So we have a really nice mix. So when we do have conversations about an article, people don't understand. People will say, well, you know, that's not true. You know, even though it's like, hey, this is a fact, you know, and here's all the evidence. Uh, we try very hard to keep members in our group because, you know, and Lori can tell you that unlearning all this information and just bias and our own stigma, I mean, that is just inside of my core, which I didn't even know I had. All that unlearning takes a lot of hard work and a lot of time. And so we try very gently to re-educate or provide more evidence. And then, you know, we have people that use drugs that are so fantastic and contribute because I know that most of them wish their parents would have known more and they really give I've learned more from them, really, than any single source. I have to tell you, my story is a little bit close to Kathleen's in that I did join, when I first started on my journey, I joined a whole bunch of different kind of Facebook groups, support groups for moms. And I ended up getting so frustrated in them. And I ended up feeling like it was only a place to go and vent constantly, just constantly vent and I just didn't see how venting 24-7 and talking about how horrible people were, it was helping. So I really did a lot of searching and then getting myself out of those groups because they weren't helping me. And right about the same time as when Kathleen, I think she had already started this group, but I started to notice her group. And so I joined Moms for All Pathways of Recovery. Warrior Moms is really what, what this group is. And I love, I think Kathleen's group is probably the best group for families, moms that have a loved one with substance use disorder. It is, it's totally educational. It encourages the reduction of stigma, really trying to el eliminate stigma around substance use disorder and to try and get out of that one track mind thinking that people with addiction are just their illness and they are not, they are people, they are people. <laughs> and it really, really challenges people. I think when you're reading all of this information, or if you go to any of these groups, these events that she holds, where there's lots of different speakers you just get an education and everybody is simply compassionate, caring, understanding. And unless you're coming into the group to cause problems, nobody's going to hassle you or anything. They're just going to talk to you and try and get you the information that you need to try and understand anything and everything about addiction. And so I was thrilled to have her on today. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I wanted her here to speak because I think her group is doing some really good work and needs a lot more support, needs a lot more members to be joining that group. All of these other groups where she was talking about earlier, where you've got, you know, 22,000 people in a group, 
they should be going over and taking a look at uh, Moms for All Pathways to Recovery. They should be going there because at the very least, you're just going to get an education. And we're not powerless. The, the anecdote for powerlessness is education. While on this journey, it became very clear because I'm up close. I've been up close and personal with my daughter this entire time. I was was powerless to make her stop using, but that's that's all. I I have lots of power to do all kinds of other things, to learn about tools. You know, Lori, where you know we've had we've had allies on, we've had you know, the Center for Motivation and Change on. We are always providing parents with tools on how to communicate with their child in a more productive way. I think, Kayla, Lori's being a little modest because, you know, I I think I found her way before she found me because I'm a member of Allies. And I always always loved uh, her response to a situation. So sometimes all of these tools are great, but parents are like, well, I don't really know how to use that. Uh, and I loved what she had to say. I just wish there were more people like you out there, Lori, that are, you know, spreading good work, understanding what we have power over and what we don't. And our group recently, somebody was talking about, you know, that one of the boundaries they were putting down was that they weren't going to talk to their child until they stopped with their drug use. And my heart sunk, you know, like the most important relationship. Why would you ever want your child to think that your love was conditional on them being a way that you wanted them to be? And they may never stop. And then what? It's so interesting listening to you, Kathleen, because when you started to speak, what I was thinking is that people are looking for very simple answers. Like, okay, it's this person did this to my son or daughter, so I have to take them out and arrest them for the rest of their life. And I feel like what all of the work that we're all trying to do is look at um, look at things in a more subtle way, learn things, be able to navigate and negotiate and step in and then know when to step out and be able to offer things but not push and have an incredible amount of knowledge so that you are a resource for your loved one as well. Exactly. One of the things that I think when you say the word powerless, it's like if you're waiting for the other person to change, you are completely powerless because then you are just waiting and waiting for me is the most difficult position to be in. But if I'm working on myself and educating myself and learning tools and working with other people and seeing what they're doing and practicing things in the meantime, and then finding out what the resources are that my loved one could possibly have when they're ready. And actually, you know, as we suggest with treatment is knowing what treatment resource resources are out there, knowing if the insurance that you or they have is accepted at that place, you're doing that front loaded work so that you're not saying, here's a piece of paper, you need to call 20 places and get yourself into one of these. That makes no sense for somebody who's trying to actually work on themselves. They don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that. But if you give them screened resources that they could call, that's different. And sometimes, I mean, this is a a statistic that really isn't talked about a, a lot, but more people recover from addiction without ever going to any kind of rehab. 
And so, you know, I think people just don't hear that story. And that's why we're moms for all past, because there really isn't one path. We're dealing with individuals. We're dealing with a healthcare condition. And so it has to be individualized to that person in all aspects of physical well-being and mental health well-being. And as we know, that can change from moment to moment. What works for somebody one minute might not work for them the next moment. So even within the individual, that can change from moment to moment. And we have to keep them alive. We have to keep them alive in order for them to live a better life. And what is recovery? I think the other issue that has to change, that people have to change their views of what recovery is, because recovery does not necessarily mean that people stop using substances. It does not mean that. And there's lots of, and this is another thing that a lot of people don't hear about, and that is recovery capital. And actually, research shows that the more recovery capital that an individual has to draw from, the more likely they are to do better in life rather than- Describe what recovery capital is. Recovery capital is all of those resources that you have to draw from, like housing, community, maybe it's it's a church or a religious group, friends, education, just everything around you that supports your ability to do better, right? To something that you can draw from. We were talking about this just recently um, in one of the groups. It shows people that are unhoused have a, of course, doesn't this make sense, have a much more difficult time going into recovery, stopping the use of substances. It's much harder if you're on the streets and things are not going well and you're hungry and it's raining and you know you haven't been able to take a shower for a while. What's going to make you feel better pretty quickly? Substance. Well, and, you know, we talk about this a lot, and I'm actually just uh, putting up a blog today, Lori, on Substack. And, you know, in that we talk about a lot of people think that they need to remove their child from their home. Now, having said that, there are like a lot of reasons somebody could not have their child in their home. Maybe they're taking care of their children, you got little kids, maybe you have younger kids. I mean, you know, so I, I I really don't judge whether somebody can or can't. But we're we're constantly as mothers and administrators of the group, like, do you have a relative they could stay at? Can you find and this is if they're using drugs. So if a sober living home isn't going to work. You know, are you able to rent a room somewhere or an apartment? I mean, for me, I tell my story because, you know, this story is, has gone on for 18 years. When Molly's younger brother was still at home and she was in active drug use and chaotic drug use at the time, I pitched a tent for her in my backyard. But she had a place to come after being on the streets at night that was safe where she could get a meal and have a shower and feel like a human being. And she was treated like a human being, even though she understood why she couldn't come into the house. You know, honey, no, it's not okay for you to shoot up next to your 10-year-old brother in the next room. Fast forward, Lori, you know that when he moved out, 
you know, we had her in and I ran my own safe injection site in my own house in a agreed upon place. And my relationship with my daughter was so great and is great that she didn't lie to me about her use. You know, I gave her equipment to test her drugs. I bought her sterile and safe supplies. Did I love it? Did I tell her, yay, go? I mean, I so people think harm reduction is enabling. I said, you know what? I don't want you to use illicit drugs because they are going to hurt you and possibly kill you. But since you are going to do it, I want you to use them safely. And I've had to reverse an overdose with her a couple of times, but I knew right away because I knew where she was and that she was using. That's hard for a lot of people to hear. It is hard for a lot of people to hear, but it's also, it's hard for you as well. That's an emotional thing for you, for a mom to be doing as well. Because it can't be easy because I'm sure with every ounce of you, you don't want her injecting drugs. Oh, right. You don't, right? So setting it up so that it's this safe place because there's no alternative, because there isn't good medicine out there, because there aren't safe consumption sites that she can go to. Yeah, if there was, that would be great. But by doing that, Lori, uh, she went from IV usage to smoking. So I was able to talk to her in a harm reduction way about how to reduce the harm of the drug she was taking. So she went from IV use to smoking. And like that was a big celebration. And then finally one day she said, you know, I'm not even really getting high anymore. This is just crazy. And I think I'm gonna stop for now. And I'm like, I think that's great. I hope you stop forever. But even giving yourself, your body, any kind of break would be great. And that's continued on. But that wouldn't have happened had I not had an open and honest and non-judgmental relationship with her where she didn't have to feel shame. I viewed my little baby girl as so sick. And that's how I envision her when things get really tough. I envision her as my tiny little baby. And that's how I can keep going back to my heart, to loving her, to sitting with her in the darkness and accepting right where she is with the caveat of not leaving her there. Radical acceptance. <laughs> it's radical acceptance, but I also, what you're describing is a very connected relationship and that you made yourself available to her. You educated yourself. You became this massive resource for her as well as a safe place and a safe haven. And when we talk at Allies about connection, what you're describing is connection. And I also would like to add the other caveat, which is not everybody could do what you did. And that goes back to the individualized program. It's like, you need to know what you're capable of. You need to know what you're willing to do. You need to know your comfort level. And I think with all of this, what we all realize is that the comfort level definitely gets pushed out over time. There's no question about that. Where you start is not where you end, but you have to know yourself because if you had not been able to deal with your own 
way of being through this, then it could have come out very sideways. So I'm going to assume that you were very clear and connected through this process with her. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I also, when we talk to mothers in, in similar situations, and maybe this is just something that they can't do, right? It just somehow goes against their value. I mean, I, I just would never, ever judge somebody for that. But I do automatically start giving resources of harm reduction organizations in the cities that they live in. Send your kid this information. Get them to these centers. They have peer support there, which is so valuable. Another drug user talking to another drug user. I mean, there are things, even if we can't do that in our own homes, there are things we can do to keep our kids safe. Yes. And I think that's what you're saying overall, right? Because, and I say this all the time, and I know, Kayla, you say this too, but as family members, yeah, stop telling us whether we should have our loved one at home or not have our loved one at home or kick them out. It's not about telling us that. It's about letting us figure out what's going to work for us. And I'm not saying because I let my loved one come home and live with me that you have to do the same. I'm not saying that. I am not saying that at all because there are lots of people who cannot do that or that's not going to work for them. And that is okay. It is you on your journey trying to figure out what is going to work for you and your family and your relationship. Right. But don't tell me, mom and another support group, that if I give money to my child, that I'm killing them because the money that I'm giving them might be their last hit and they may die. Do not tell me that loving and caring for my child in my way and what feels good in my mommy's heart, do not tell me that act is going to kill them because you know, in my mind, I gave money to my daughter at various times throughout our journey. And I gave it because like on her birthday, uh, I gave her money because I didn't want her to prostitute or steal something to get the drugs because I knew she was going to get the drugs anyway. And so that made me feel good. Some moms just can't do that. It just goes against their values. And that's okay, too. But don't tell me that I'm going to kill my kid. But also, I think what you're saying, which I have been <laughs> I've been battling fiercely lately, is I think the issue is, is that there's a ton of people out there telling moms like you and I that by giving money, by giving a place to live, that we are enabling, that we are killing. Nobody is telling the person that agrees to uh, not let their loved one home, or I'm not paying for their car, or I'm not giving them cash, or nobody is saying to those people, well, if you don't give them money, you might be killing them. Nobody's doing that. Everybody is really pushing against those families that are offering up loving support. Well, there is no other medical condition, not one, that you would ever behave this way or even have these conversations. Now, if you don't have money because you're, you know, you're on social security or you're unemployed, you don't have money. Well, there's other things you can figure out to do to help. Or for me, you know, because I got sick of the constant, I need money, need money, I need money. I'm like, look, I have $200 that I can give you a month. 
So you can ask me for that a little bit of a time. You can ask me for it all at once. But when it's gone, I, I'm sorry, honey, but that's all I can afford to give you. And that's that worked for me. But that's why the title of your group is what makes the most sense, which is that there's many paths. And what you're describing about other people saying you're killing the person or you should do this, nobody knows except you what the right thing to do in your situation is. Nobody. And so the job of each of us is to get educated, to look at ourselves, to figure out what we want, what we need, what feels right. And the more information you have, which is why you want more people to come to your group, the more able you are to make enlightened decisions. And to me, enlightenment not only is about what the data is, but you have to check in with yourself. What can I live with? What do I need? What feels like connection to me? What feels like love to me? How is my way of expressing myself? I know my person. I know my child. I know myself. And nobody could tell you what's right but yourself. Perfectly said. And often what I do is I, I'll say to people, what do you think? What's the right thing for you? And people get like, they're all like throwing all these things up. And then I ask that question and they stop for a second and they have the answer. So your answer is the right answer. That's what you need to do. And again, like I said, it's going to change from moment to moment. You might say, okay, I'm giving you 200 bucks a month, spend it how you want. And then there comes a point it's like, you know, I don't really want to do that anymore. That doesn't feel right. We have to figure something else out. So none of it's written in stone. And part of growth is that things change over time, both with you and your loved one. And you want to be able to be flexible about that. Each of us is an expert in our own lives. Bingo. Including our children. Especially. <laughs> they might be, they might have issues, but we all do. So they're working on their issues. We're working on ours. And if we partner with our loved ones, it changes the dynamic, which is what we're all trying to do. Okay. So just quickly, we're running out of time. I think we could talk for hours and hours on this. Just quickly, can you share with us one, can you give us the title again of the documentary so that people can get out there and they can go and watch the documentary? It's untreated and unheard. Okay, great. And then on Facebook, can you please tell us the name of the group? Because I want people, I want family members, any of our listeners, please go check out Kathleen's Facebook group. It's a great place to go and get all sorts of resources and education and to connect with other family members and just to get educated, to help destigmatize. It's one of it's a great place to just hold a conversation and try and understand addiction and policy and advocate for your loved one. The Facebook group is called Moms for All Paths to Recovery from Addiction. Our acronym is MAP, M-A-P. You can also find us on Twitter at Moms All Paths. And uh, as I said, we're just launching, if anyone is on Substack, we're just launching a new blog. Again, it's at Moms for All Paths, and you can sign up. It's free, and you can sign up and get the email. If you're not on Facebook or social media, you can get the email blog each week. 
And just one question, because I just looked on it while you were talking. And so you you have to have a loved one that's dealing with addiction. If you are an expert in the field and feel that, and I mean, we don't allow solicitations, so, but we do, uh, if you have a, if you have a loved one, you don't have to just be a mom or you feel that uh, you would like to spend a little bit of your time giving to others your wisdom, you can do that too. Okay, great. Or if you use drugs. Thank you, Kathleen. This was magnificent. Yeah, it was really fantastic having you and maybe we can have you again in the future. Thank you. And thank you both for all the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.